Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The young Eleanor Roosevelt left New York City and rode out to frontier towns such as Springfield, Missouri and Fort Worth, Texas, where for years she was a gunfighter, shooting down seven men in street duels and gambling disputes. Hey, stop the music. Yeah, what's wrong? What you said, that's not true. Eleanor Roosevelt was never a gunfighter in the Wild West. That's not in your notes. But as a matter of collective memory, it really might be true. No, you don't even know what that term means. That's all I'm going to say. The young Theodore Roosevelt was frail and sickly, seized with terrible asthma, which made a normal childhood difficult. The condition cleared up in young adulthood during the three years he lived as an Amish woman. Stop. You're doing it again. The first part was true about the asthma, but Teddy Roosevelt never lived as an Amish woman. That you know of. That makes it sound like historians might have somehow missed it. Or it was covered up. Yes, but it wasn't. Look, Mr. Burns has a reputation for veracity. Please stick to what's on the page. I suppose we're also going to cover up the fact that FDR wrote the lyrics to Papa Don't Take No Mess on the back room of a service menu from the Taft Hotel 19 years before James Brown recorded it. Okay, that's it. You're fired. Get out. What a grouch that guy is. This Roosevelt series is going to be so boring. Today on the show, Bill Greider on the new long-running war in the Middle East you're not supposed to believe in, Time Magazine critic James Ponowasik on the Roosevelts, and Slate Legal Affairs writer Mark Joseph Stern on the blurry state of child punishment laws. And now he's appalled by the omission of Jermaine Roosevelt, Colin McEnroe. True, but we'll be talking about the Roosevelts later on the show today. This is The Scramble. Uh, We uh, leap from thing to thing on our Monday show. We're very fortunate, uh, honored indeed, to have uh, William Greider. He's the national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Depending on how old you are, you may have read him for many years uh, in a similar role, in a similar capacity at Rolling Stone. Uh, His most recent piece, Obama's Long War in the Middle East, appears in the September 29th issue of the magazine. So, William Greider, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, listening to uh, to Wednesday's uh, speech by uh, President Obama, people heard different things. But what you heard was the beginning uh, of an eternal borderless war. Now, now, given how measured President Obama seemed to be trying to be in, in setting parameters and setting up uh, rules for for how the United States would engage. Why did you hear what you heard? Because I've been there before <laughs> in my long life. And uh, I, I don't, I don't question his sincerity. I think he has struggled to try to take the country into a, to a meaningful transition off of its um, fight every war for America and democracy stance, which we've had now for quite a long time. But um, he, the way he said it. I know he left doors open, windows open, um, to adjusting his views of what he has to do. You can say, well, that's reasonable. After all, he doesn't know what the war is going to do. But again, I recall again and again over the last 30 years, uh, similar postures, 
and I and it's it's impossible for me to take them in good faith anymore. And and one of the questions that I have about this is, I mean, well, first of all, let, let's sort of go, go down that road a little bit more. So he's he's talking about essentially to to revive an old phrase, a coalition of the willing. Right. This involves getting uh, the Saudis, the Turks, the Europeans involved, uh, giving them specific roles. Uh, he's talking about no ground troops. Uh, he's setting a whole bunch of rules. You're basically saying that history tells us that those rules collapse in the face of change. Changing circumstances. Yeah, but more than that, uh, they they begin with with declarations from the president and the Pentagon and everybody else that we're only going to do this. We're not going to do more. We promise. We promise. We promise. But the condition of these wars, particularly when you're fighting in third world or developing countries that are already in an enormous turmoil of uh, both secular, sectarian conflicts and trying to get out from under the history of colonialism and lots more, some of which is quite ugly and crazy. But nevertheless, you can't make that promise with any good faith because once you're in the fighting and you've said you're going to accomplish X, Y, Z, and then you fail... You will be back in the in the in the chair answering. Okay, what are you going to do now? And I, I repeat, I've I've and it is not me. I mean, any American who has been observing things since the 1960s recognizes the pattern. And of course, we wish it doesn't happen again. But I'm no longer confident of that. Um, Bill Greider, in your piece, you talk about the failure of the press sometimes to acquaint Americans with rational alternatives to the militaristic policy being proposed. Um, are there rational alternatives here? Is there another way of looking at, at ISIS and, and what it implies? Well, there's another way of looking at the entire Middle East. And and um, I'm perfectly aware that that all of those are difficult choices and and the arguments, the conventional arguments, are no, no, no. We can't, we can't get out of these conflicts. We're the only honest broker, or we're the only one with the power to to make people behave, and so forth. And I know all those understandings, and I grant that that uh, they certainly probably have the majority opinion among governing elites, as opposed to say the broad citizenry of America, and it just wants out of the wars. So and you know they have sub views within that, but. So if that's the case, then we're saying, well, we are in a, in a world of, of uh, borderless wars that, that are more or less forever because we have our good troops stationed around the world, some of them in uniform, some of them in black as special ops, people who go into society sometimes without permission and kill people and so forth and so on. Those are tripwires in my view, for some time another war. And they're intended to intimidate people into not misbehaving. I understand that. But you know what? People in the world have a, have a habit of misbehaving, especially when the big guy on the block says, don't do that. I won't let you do that. I'm more powerful than you. Take my commands or take my suggestions. So you see what I mean? I, I, this is... This is a historic dilemma 
that this that our superpower has. My own view is that we have made it worse for ourselves, maybe for the world, by after the after the Cold War ended, a deliberate strategy of positioning these these front line military forces around the world in dozens, dozens of countries. And I find that, um, first of all, completely ridiculous in terms of, of expectations. We can't fight in all those places. We don't have any reason to. But, but that strategy sets us up. And, you, and you're seeing that now. You know, we started out, there were a handful of countries that were real serious stews and trouble. And we've expanded that now where we have regional commands almost covering the entire world. And we started one in Africa. Right after we started one in Africa, sure enough, it encountered um, bad guys. There aren't bad guys in these countries. We knew that. And so now we've got the tricky decision-making of, well, what do we do? Well, right now in Somalia, we're bombing people sort of one by one, picking off leaders and so forth and so on. We have a lot of drones. We have a lot of bombs. We can no doubt accomplish a lot of that. But what I'm suggesting is it, it, it sets us up for a time of revenge or, 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 uh, or response, a pushback, which we don't really have any control over. We can go around the world and crush everybody, but, but that's not a very plausible foreign policy. So that's, that's why I don't uh, – 20 years ago, 10, maybe even 10 years ago, I would have let Barack Obama as president off the hook because I do think his intentions were, were good at the beginning. But that's not where he is now. The um, you know, One of the more uh, intelligent things that I heard uh, about this uh, came in the form of a phone call, I think, to another uh, public uh, radio show. Someone basically making the point that, sure, ISIS, on the one hand, is a set of tangible things. There are uh, military equipment. There are generals, and many of them former Saddam Hussein generals. Uh, it's a military operation that's doing a certain number of things. On the other hand, ISIS is also a placeholder for a set of ideas. Um, and, and the question really becomes, and it's a pretty good extension from what you're talking about, how, how do you combat ideas? Because as you're suggesting, Bill Greider, you can go around with drones and maybe snuff out some leaders, uh, maybe uh, blow up some ordinance, but but you won't blow up the ideas that are behind all this, the ideas that led to this in the first place. But but then that sort of makes you wonder, well, is there some kind of strategy that that, that exists to counteract sets of ideas like this one? Well, that's that's my view exactly. That that, uh, and it's of course it's complex, and of course it's 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 uh, it's got uh, you know multiple misperceptions on both sides of the world. Uh, But it seems to me this the simple way of putting it is, if we the the superpower with with all of the bombs etc. started telling ourselves a more honest, truthful narrative of the world, we would, it, that would be a good step toward, toward a better situation. And, and what I mean by that is that, and I think he did try some of this, at least earlier in his presidency, but, but if Obama said, 
look, there's a lot of there's a lot of conflict in the world, and we can't settle it. And here's the, what the conflict is about. And I mean, and I, I I understand he didn't want to make things worse by explaining history, but history is what Americans don't know, and and I mean that with respect to historians. It, it's people don't know what happened 20 years ago, much less 50 years ago. So I would tell a narrative of American history in which, uh, and this is where I grew up, and which World War II, which was, uh, to me, one of the great ventures of, of a powerful nation in the history of the world. And we, unlike World War I, where we punished losers, we came out of World War II convinced that we hadn't to help and lead reconstruction of the world's community with the UN and the Marshall Plan, and you, you know that history. And then we went from there to the Cold War, which I have more doubts about the, the necessities of that, but, but it happened. And we fought lots of little wars, not some of them not so little, like Vietnam. Then the Cold War ended in the early 90s. I mean, literally, the Soviet Union imploded. And, and after that, I think we got off on the wrong foot by declaring that we would fill the vacuum for the Cold War. And, we, and we've tried to do that. And I think that's a misconception of what this country can do successfully, but also what it should do. The, you know, I just was reading a review this Sunday in the Times of Henry Kissinger's new book. He, as you might guess, he's not one of my favorite <laughs> thinkers, but I found it, it some of his argument compelling because he's saying really basic things right out of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun, and the world has had deep conflicts of religion and power and populations for, for from the beginning, probably. And we're pretending that we can extinguish that. Or, or somehow govern it. So what I'm asking for is Americans, first of all, to learn some real history from their government and from not their government, and then, and then ask ourselves these big questions of what do we think our purpose in the world is? I mean, presumably it's the American interests, but in a lot of ways I think we are not serving our interests. And I can go on this way, but you, you get, I hope you get the drift. I said it in, in one of my articles or blogs, we are a great nation deranged by our militarism. And I don't mean that as a slur on the military. Mm. Quite the contrary. They are, they, are, they are mandated to do these things for us, and they try to do them. And mostly in recent years they have failed, not, not because they're, they're poorly trained or equipped or anything else, or incompetent. They're not, but because they're being asked to do something which is not doable. The, uh, the question rises, though, can you give the American public, the American voters, um, a more thoughtful foreign policy than what they want? 
I mean, I, I granting your premise that this is a teachable moment. Uh, if imagine that President Obama said, well, let me let me just spend a few months explaining all of this to you, like how we got to this point and why unipolar military activities by us are not going to work anymore. Uh, why that whole strategy is, in your words, Bill Kreider, headed for the trash can, uh, like it or not. So here's some other things we've got to do. I'm guessing that by the end of a couple of months of that, President Obama's approval ratings would be in the single digits. I mean, the polls kind of suggest that, uh, in fact, uh, the American public has gotten a very different message from ISIS. And, and that, that also, just to sort of finish up this long question, that anybody coming in after President Obama and looking at the public response to his more thoughtful, more 21st century oriented foreign policy would think, wow, I don't want to do that because they didn't like it very much. So whether I'm a Republican or whether I'm Hillary Clinton, I'm just sort of by default going to be tougher than Obama was. Well, I know that's the presumption, <laughs> and I think it, it may be wrong. Mm. I can't prove it's wrong because the government, has, including Obama, has abandoned that possibility. And, and again, I don't want to beat up on him. I think he's relatively virtuous in this story. But the fact is, this isn't a secret. People have acknowledged it, and people in the governing elites have acknowledged it. This country... Has, it did not go to war out of out of public opinion, not in Afghanistan. Well, maybe in Afghanistan, but certainly not in Iraq, nor in the Serbia and elsewhere. I mean, nor in Vietnam, for that matter. It was tuned up for war because the government and the media, particularly the Puppet Army, aroused fears and said, "This is a we must fight. We must. We do or die, etc., etc., etc." And I, and having taken the, the country through, what, two decades plus mm. of, of really terrible war, impossible to, from the start, because they, we wanted to convert these Muslims into our kind of, of belief systems or whatever. And the country, the people, the populace just wants no more of it. That has now been temporarily swept aside by the beheadings and the crisis in Iraq, etc. When I say be more, tell the truth, be more honest, the, the president said, might have said, when, they, when he came to power, I'm in, a, I'm in a bad patch here because of what my predecessor created. And, I, and you need to know that we don't have a pristine solution to it. What, we, what I believe we should do is begin gradually or, or quickly withdraw and leave a lot of money and stuff on the table for, for the Iraqis. But there is going to be turmoil and maybe a renewal of the Civil War, which we snuffed out. The Civil War started, we might add, because we decided to change their government. We invaded the country, we crushed the, their government, and we put in a new one. Pretty much oblivious to the profound religious conflict within Islam itself, which has been going on for, what, 1,200 years? And I, I mean, I had a piece in one of my last few books of a um, survey that a, uh, it wasn't a survey in the poll sense, but it was a, a reporter whose name I'm blanking for the moment, went around and asked leaders of the House and Senate military committees and foreign policy or, or arms or defense department 
if they could explain the difference between Sunni and Shiite. And as you might guess, every one of them that he quoted, even the brilliant reporter, was to ask that question because they didn't know. Mm-hmm. A few of them admitted honestly, you know, I never did figure that out. Others tried to, tried to state answers to the question and got it wrong. And to me, that was a marker of where we are as a great nation. We're willing to sign on for a 10-year war, but we don't have the patience to find out who these people are that we're fighting. Now, I know there are lots of experts around Washington who claim to do that, but, th- but that's not a political reality. That, that, and I could go on and on with the tactics and the decisions that were made, the decisions which Obama is making now. He says he won't fight in, in uh, Syria, but he'll bomb the crap out of Syria. Mm-hmm. Well, I doubt that the Syrians will look at it that way. And, you know, after you bombed them a while, and then you say, Uncle, are you ready to, are you ready to give this up and get out of the Syrian government? They will respond with, you know, poisonous chemicals or some... They, they, people have been pushed into a corner and you pounded the bejesus out of them tend not to give up without a, a terminal fight. And that's what Obama has bought into. Now, I'm, I'm giving you, spewing my prejudices at your, <laughs> your listeners, but one of the things that drives me nuts is the lingo of war making, which has now been utterly absorbed by the media, but also the political class, and also, I have to say, a great many of the public so that we don't say troops that are being deployed to here and there. We say boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. That's not what happened. It's not boots on the ground. It's people, men and women, being sent to fight somewhere else and so forth. The other one which bothers me and will offend some of your listeners, I've been to I don't know how many events, including baseball games, in the last year or so, where they trotted out families of, of, of returning veterans, some of whom <clears throat> were without their legs or arms and so forth and so on, some of whom were killed and their, their children and families were there, and they honored them as heroes. And I find that a little grating because I would say the reality of those wars, particularly in Iraq, was not heroic, and for many of the troops... Quite the opposite. They got, you know, they were going down a road in a in a personnel carrier, and they got blown up. What is heroic about that? Not much. Again, I'm not slighting those those soldiers and their families, but that's a, that's another euphemism designed to keep this war in a positive frame of mind. So, what I'm suggesting is. And I recognize how difficult it would be and how provocative it would be, but a kind of cleansing of our of our rhetoric and and pretenses and and let's let's have some civil but intense arguments over these things. Yeah, with uh, 2016 on the horizon, I, I'm not hopeful, but I mean it's a great idea. We've got well, a... but 2016 is a good moment for yeah. this. Right? It is. It is a teachable moment. I mean, yeah. we, the Democrats going to nominate a, a war leader. Sounds like it so far. I don't know if that's the case, but are the Republicans? The Republicans beat up on Obama because he's insufficiently aggressive. Mm-hmm. Does that mean they're promising to, to up the ante if they get power? 
It's a fair question. We've got a call here from Renee in West Hartford. Uh, hi, Renee. You're on the air. Oops. Yep, you're on the air. Yeah, hang on a minute. I, uh, uh, okay, I think we're going to have to break hello? away from Yeah, no, I, I don't. there's some kind of problem there. Uh, we're going to have to kind of break away from here. I could use a little more volume, by the way. Okay, so uh, Bill Greider, um, we're wrapping up here uh, anyway. But but so so that's the question as we head into 2016. I mean, just to go back to that question about whether you can give the American public a different, more thoughtful kind of public policy than they want. It does seem as though the 26 campaign won't be about this. It'll be about who's tougher, Hillary Clinton or you know pick your Republican nominee. But it's hard to see a Republican nominee uh, coming forward and saying, "No, I'm actually going to limit." Our use of force. We're not going to go in 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 situations like this. It's got to be international consensus. It's got to be, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that scenario. I'm not. I'm. You may be right. It's certainly the history that we don't get that argument until it's too late. But um, you know, we've got a situation now where um, the Republicans have a possible candidate named Senator Rand Paul, mm-hmm. who has been saying for many years, and like other libertarians, we should not be so ready to stick our nose in other people's wars and business and fights. And he's, he's been very cautious. And, and, uh, and you know, we, need, we can live with a smaller military and less engagements, etc. Now, I'm told, I think I've read little bits of this, that now that he's confronted with a real-life question, he's backing off a bit and saying, oh, yes, he would support the, the uh, escalation in, in Iraq, Syria. I, I, don't, I don't know the facts of that, but I'm, I'm trying to say to people, that, and I have a little megaphone which doesn't reach most of America, I, I, as you know, but I'm saying to people, we can't wait for the political parties to get the nerve to do something sober and rational on this subject. They won't do it for the reasons you've described. It's a, it's a killer politically. But that doesn't disable us entirely as, as citizens. And I, I'm working on a piece right now to take a rap at the pundits. As you know, in the last couple of months, with only a few rare honorable exceptions, the pundit army, as I call them, has, has been urging us to go to war and, and, and ragging on the president because he hasn't been sufficiently aggressive. So I say, let's take on the pen, pundits. <laughs> All I, right. You know, I mean, I mean, really name names and, and, and pull them into an argument they don't want to have. Shame them. All right. That'll be the subject for a future conversation. Bill Greider, so great to add to the size of your megaphone at least a little bit today. Thanks so much for joining us. Bill Greider, national affairs correspondent for The Nation. His most recent piece, Obama's Long War in the Middle East, appears in the September 29th issue of that magazine. We'll be back with a conversation about the blurry state of child physical discipline laws here in the U.S.
As if the NFL did not have enough problems over the last week, it developed that Adrian Peterson, the star running back for the Minnesota Vikings, uh, was facing arrest in Texas because of his disciplining, his corporal punishment uh, of one of his sons. Uh, we do know that uh, Adrian, well, we, we believe we know anyway that Adrian Peterson used a branch uh, or a switch, I think is what he calls it, called it, uh, but, but some kind of branch that he um, whipped the, the child with it uh, on the child's buttocks and legs. There were injuries uh, even to the child's scrotum. Uh, from this, uh, at least according to most of the reports that are out there right now. Um, and, and if you see the pictures which are attributed to this case, uh, they're pretty shocking. And they make you think that, yes, yeah, some kind of grievous harm was done, some kind of harm, um, most people would say, worthy of some kind of reaction uh, on the part of the state. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern uh, joins us right now. Uh, he writes about uh, legal affairs and LGBT issues for Slate. Uh, and um, he's written about this, and he's written about the fact that, um, in fact, it's not a certainty that Adrian Peterson will receive some kind of punishment in Texas, uh, nor would he necessarily receive punishment in lots of other states uh, here in the Union. So uh, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Um, this article is about a lot of different things, and it's really an interesting and comprehensive article with lots of uh, interesting links to follow. But probably the nutshell of it is the the, the whole issue of legitimate corporal punishment of children in this country is an enormous blurry one. There aren't maybe the kinds of bright lines we might like to have. Maybe you can sort of elaborate on that. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, It's not at all clear under U.S. law in, in any state, really, where legitimate corporal punishment ends and child abuse begins. Um, the problem here is that uh, pretty much every state bans uh, what, it, what they describe as bodily injury or bodily harm to children. Um, but courts have all uniformly held that that doesn't include a certain level of quote-unquote acceptable punishment. Uh, the idea here is that sort of traditional forms of child discipline like spanking and perhaps like uh, whipping with a switch have always been acceptable in America, and no court has been willing to say, and certainly no legislature has been willing to say, hold on a minute, we're not going to accept that. We don't think that parents have any right to to harm their children. So we have a state like Texas, which claims that it bans uh, injury to children, Um, but many times over the court has said this only applies to truly grievous injury, injury that shocks the conscience. Um, people have, parents have been prosecuted in Texas for whipping their children with dog leashes, for spanking their children with a wooden oar so hard that it breaks on their buttocks. But in general, something like this, which is honestly a, a very traditional form of punishment, uh, is, not, is not necessarily illegal under Texas law. The um, so a lot of that will wind up maybe in the lap of a jury, right? And so a jury will decide to a certain degree how to um, interpret the, con- the the concept of substantial harm or, or serious injury. Uh, and, and then you do have some bright lines that that a jury could invoke, striking on parts of. I mean, I'm go- actually looking at the uh, American Pediatric Association's 1998 sta- uh, statement about this. Even though most pediatricians say don't use corporal punishment at all, they try to sort of come up 
up with a, a needle threader on this and, and said sort of your basic open hand spanking on the buttocks uh, or extremities uh, with the attention of modifying behavior without causing physical injury. Well, that's, you know, try not to do it, but if you do it, so be it. Uh, but then they see other forms of physical punishment, such as striking a child with an object, striking a child on parts of the body other than the buttocks or extremities, striking a child with such intensity that marks lasting more than a few minutes occur, pulling a child's hair, jerking a child by the arm, shaking a child, uh, and physical punishment delivered in anger with intent to cause pain are unacceptable. You know, that I, I feel like that's sort of a reasonable standard, but then I'm sitting here in Connecticut uh, on public radio. <laughs> so, so maybe in Texas, you know, a jury is, is not going to go in that direction. Well, it's just very hard to legislate those fine-grained distinctions. They might sound like a bright line um, when, when they're in a journal or, or something like that, but when it comes down to an actual statute, which just says uh, injury to a child or bodily harm, it's very hard to explain to a jury why A is okay but B crosses the line. So it'll be quite difficult, I think, for, for a judge instructing a jury to say, well, we let parents spank their children, Sometimes we let parents whip their children, but sometimes we think that whipping goes over the line. And now it's your decision to decide whether this was acceptable whipping or unacceptable whipping. Um, there's no set standard in the law books, certainly not in Texas, that allows a jury to make those kinds of distinctions. And so they end up sort of feeling their way based on what I suspect is largely sort of morality and just their own personal judgment calls, which is not how we're supposed to decide legal matters of this import in the United States. You know, one of the things that you point to uh, are the studies that have been done recently just indicating that spanking really doesn't work. Just even just regular, basic, open-handed spanking on the bottom doesn't work, uh, can lead to increased aggression, antisocial behavior, physical injury, mental health problems, uh, even cognitive problems uh, for for children. And yet, I, I found one of the more shocking things uh, in your piece, Mark Joseph Stern, the link that takes you to the countries that have uh, abolished corporal punishment for children. And I mean, you know, you're not surprised to find Scandinavian countries there, but like Bolivia, <laughs> we're, we're actually on the other side of Bolivia from this. I, I was really surprised to see how many countries had said, no, just don't, don't hit your kids at all. That's absolutely right. Um, there are about 40 countries that have completely banned corporal punishment, um, ranging from Sweden, which was the first to do it in the 1970s, to Bolivia and, and countries like that, where you wouldn't quite expect that level of um, of humanity, but uh, especially with regard to child laws, which are very sensitive to legislate. Um, but just to give you an idea of how completely isolated we are in the international community on this issue, there is a, a UN treaty that I discuss, and the treaty is, is a very broad and basic treaty designed to stop um, child trafficking, um, child prostitution, child pornography. Um, uh, and the United States has decided that somehow ratifying this treaty would threaten parents' rights to spank their children. Thus, the Republicans in the Senate have blocked its ratification several times. And the only two countries now who have not ratified it are the United States and Somalia, which is in a state of near anarchy. Every single other country, including South Sudan, which is a very new country, has ratified this treaty. But we refuse to because conservatives are convinced that there is a tiny, tiny chance that it might somewhat curb parents' rights to hit their children. But in a way, this sort of 
fits in with a pattern, you know? I mean, and, and it, it's sort of an odd and disturbing element of American character. I mean, we, we are now in a tiny minority of countries that have the death penalty. Uh, but that, if anything, seems to further seat the, the, the intransigence and the reluctance to do anything about it. And, and probably the information contained in your article or in that link suggesting, wow, there are 40 countries where you can't spank your kids, would even more deeply freak out uh, Christian groups and any other groups that are, are worried about preserving the right to spank. Uh, I mean, the message would be, wow, though, yeah, the more you participate in international uh, agreements, the less freedom you have to do stuff like this. And there are lots of countries that don't let you do it anyway. Uh, we're right to be afraid of that U.N. treaty. I mean, I'm describing an irrational attitude, but one that I'm sure exists. That's right. And that's what makes it such a complex issue. Um, the, America is still a very Christian country, and the Bible not only condones, but explicitly encourages spanking. Uh, the Bible says if you spare your, the rod, then you hate your child. Um, and so spanking has, has frequently been a sort of Christian conservative talking point. Um, which is one of the reasons why it's so intractable. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right that Americans are terrified of international law. Americans really despise international law. Um, there was a, an act in Congress that didn't pass, but it would have banned any court in the United States from even citing international law in its decisions. Um, that was largely a response to our Supreme Court just noting that we were alone uh, in the world in allowing minors to be executed. Uh, Congress said, no, 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 it doesn't matter. We're America. We get to do our own thing. And so I think you're absolutely right that the more Americans feel isolated in their insistence on corporal and capital punishment, the more we're going to double down on it. I mean, the the one maybe hopeful thing in all of this is you look at a case like Adrian Peterson's, which is likely to be a pretty public one, and assuming that it goes, does go to trial, which is not uh, necessarily the case, uh, it, it does occasion a conversation uh, and a chance for us to sort of uh, check our own attitudes. Sometimes our national attitudes aren't what we think they are, um, and, and, and maybe our national attitudes at least extend to the idea that striking a, a child in a way that you, you leave marks that last for days and days, leave marks like the ones we see in that picture, that that's not a Okay, and and that we can agree on that, and maybe try to write that as a bright line anyway into law, which is a, a puny beginning, but it, it, it's a beginning. I, you wonder if maybe that's the one hope that comes out of a, a case like this, which touches off a national dialogue. I absolutely hope so, and I hope that juries in the future will perhaps look to this case as sort of a benchmark. Um, in a very blurry area of the law, maybe they'll be able to look at this case and say, well, here at the very least is where we cannot go. Here is a case that has truly gone too far and try to use that to measure the case that's actually before them. Well, Mark Joseph Stern from Slate Magazine, wonderful to make your acquaintance. You're a great guest. We hope to have you back. Mark Joseph Stern writes for Slate about science, the law, and LGBTQ issues. You can see his piece right there out front on Slate right now on Adrian Peterson and the state of corporal punishment law regarding children. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of FDR was played by Bill Curry, who was played by Bill Murray. 
For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making a pie out of stale Apple products, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, Connecticut jumps into the gigabit race. And now, back to Colin. If I could just take uh, two or three seconds to quickly uh, uh, set that up. Uh, A month or two ago, we were doing a story. We did a whole show. Uh, about communities that have gone with this uh, incredibly blazing fast uh, high-speed gigabit per second um, uh, cable infrastructure. Uh, Chattanooga is the most famous one, but there's a, there's a bunch of others. And we talked about what it could do if it were tried in Connecticut. Well, I can't really say any too much right now, right? I can't say too much until 2.30. But there's going to be an announcement today about what may be tried in Connecticut. We really feel like it's significant enough so that we have to come back for, to it. And so if you saw the New York Times article last week, let's just say there are some towns or cities in Connecticut that might be able to upload 612 kitten photos per second, assuming they uh, wanted to, and, and possibly possibly be able to do more serious things than that. We're going to switch over. Last night was the beginning of the series about the Roosevelts by Ken Burns. Uh, James Ponowazic uh, is a journalist and television critic for Time.com. Uh, he joins us right now. Uh, welcome to the show, James Ponowazic. Uh, hi, thanks for having me on. First of all, I love your take on this. I, I love the way you, you went, went after this subject, uh, beginning with the notion that Ken Burns, whenever he directs uh, one of these documentaries, he's having a conversation about the actual denotative stuff that the documentary is about, but he's also having this secondary conversation with America about something else. Uh, explain what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I will be honest, I was... Um Often in the past, uh, kind of a, a Ken Burns skeptic. I think I used to have the, the, the attitude toward him that his shtick was kind of making passionately argued documentaries about things that, you know, everybody agreed with. Uh, you know, war is hell, uh, you know, racism is bad, democracy is good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the more I watch his films, and, and this newest one is no exception, I think he's actually very shrewdly aware of how um, history, you know, repeats and rhymes and how it's in a a conversation with the present, Uh, which is not to say that he's just, you know, ripping things out of the headlines and making movies to directly comment on things that are going on now. Uh, You know, he has this tremendous documentary operation he starts working on things you know the, the, the years in advance he, he can't necessarily that directly be doing it and and yet if you look at many of his recent projects they do end up though they're treating you know sort of textbook american history talking about things that we're talking about today uh you know be it uh the Dust Bowl, which had a lot of echoes with issues of climate change today. The National Parks, which was basically, um, a, you know, a, a movie about whether the government collectively can do things that the private market can't. Uh, uh, the War, which, uh, you know, came along, uh, at, you know, after we had been uh, entangled in uh, uh, the Iraq War, and so on and so on. Um, the Roosevelt, you know, I, I think on the face of it seems kind of innocuous. Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, these very um, celebrated uh, uh, figures of American history. Um, it, you know, who could, who could see any controversy in that? But, but I think really when he's making a film about the Roosevelt, he's really making a film about the 20th century, uh, which is to say, you know, it kind of, you know, 
Teddy Roosevelt was born in uh, uh, the 1850s. I forget the year exactly. But, you know, he became president basically at the beginning of the 20th century. The progressive movement comes in. You have a more activist government, a bigger government, a more internationalist government. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the New Deal, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, you know, becomes involved in, in uh, uh, civil rights in the United Nations and women's issues. Um, it, it really becomes a story about how, in many ways, the the, the American government and the social contract changed in the 20th century, which our politics right now is arguing about today. I mean, you could say that something like the Tea Party, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the debates that have come out of that is basically an argument about was the 20th century a good idea or not? Yeah, I love, uh, I love that know, line in your piece. So you can piece. see some of that being you know, re-echoed here. Yeah, I love that line in your piece uh, that you realize how many of today's political arguments are about essentially the question of whether the 20th century was a good idea. So when you look at it that way, and first of all, I think we have to say with Ken Burns, you know, it's probably not, and I don't think you're suggesting this either, it's probably not the case that Ken Burns walks around with this whole set of secondary subliminal clandestine agendas. It's more like what would be a really energizing thing to make a documentary about yeah. and commit a lot of time to. Well, well, you know, why is baseball or jazz inherently interesting enough to commit the kind of resources that Ken Burns does? Well, because they, they kick those tripwires in each case, as you say, about race. That's why that's interesting. Baseball all by itself isn't that interesting. But the, but the way, well, it is interesting, but, but the way that race and those kinds of issues play out across the canvas of baseball, that's what makes it worth the trouble of Ken Burns. Um, and so this time, it, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're right, that, that one of the things that makes makes this worth doing, even though there's X million biographies and, and articles, and, and, and I was even looking at the fictional portrayals of the Roosevelt's on the, on the big screen. It's amazing how many actors have played FDR, from Bill Murray to, to, everybody, to, to everybody more appropriately chosen than Bill Murray. But so why do something like this? Well, because, in fact, you're, you're kind of, even in the first uh, episode, which is all that I've seen, you're kind of basically asking the question, well, was this a heroic endeavor? by these highly privileged people who really could have decided just to make a lot of money uh, and would have been good at it and already were good at it and, and have a nice life and, and, you know, and, and have it be that. The fact that they made this decision to go into the public arena, is this something that we should feel good about? I don't know how much more of this you've seen, whether you've seen the whole 14 hours or not, but, but to me, it, it raised a pretty exciting question last night. Uh, yeah, I agree, and and you know, uh, yeah, I I I I think you're right that you know I don't think that that Ken Burns is is coming along with a a a message or a thing that he wants to preach and then finding a, a you know a, a, a topic to hang on to that uh, and and creating documentaries um, um, that way. I I simply think you know as you say, he looks at a topic and sees the way in, in which that topic really matters beyond uh, the subject himself, and you know why why cover this span of the 20th century through this family? Well, you know, it's like, why do magazines do profiles on individuals, um, you know, rather than just writing sort of, you know, dry pieces on the issues that those people are concerned with? It's, you know, it's, it's because it, it, it humanizes uh, the history. Uh, it shows you how people affect history and how people are shaped by the times that they live in. You know, why did why did you know why 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 did Shakespeare uh, do so many histories that were about uh, uh, individuals? You know, it's 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 a fascinating way into a story, and, and I do think, having seen the entire thing, that um, you know he does a quite interesting job of complicating these figures 
um, who are, you know, who have, you know, uh, they're on coins and carved into the side of mountains and, you know, uh, books are written about them and, and, and they're lionized. But, but on the other hand, um, you know, he, he, he will show how um, uh, the, the good and the bad or the weaknesses in these people can come out of some of the same sort of things. If you take just one example from the early part of it, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, you know, he goes into the fact that, okay, here's this guy who was sort of shaped by his youth where he was a weakling and he fought against that, and he made himself, you know, by force of will, very uh, uh, athletic and adventurous, and it sort of came to dominate the way he saw the world. Um, you know, that made him very vigorous and, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, aggressive in the way he viewed government. Uh, it made him heroic to some people, but it also had sides, you know, the, the documentary points out, he was basically a warmonger, you know, like mm -hmm. he, 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 he loved war to the extent there's this fantastic uh, quote in there where he says it, it's something to the effect that, you know, no, no triumph of peace is the equivalent of the supreme triumph of war. Uh, and you, you couldn't imagine at any politician, uh, even the most, uh, you, you know, hawkish politician just coming out and saying that uh, uh, today. Um, you, you know, so, so uh, I, you know, and I think when you're doing biography like that, when you're talking about people like that from, you know, and, and, and talking about how people have used power and privilege uh, this way, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a way of showing how uh, good and bad impulses in society can have some of the same roots. Um, James Panawazic, it's so, so great to, first of all to have you on our show. I dare not ask you another question without completely frying our clock. I just do want to say, as we get ready to go, the other thing that really struck me about this, and I haven't seen all of them the way uh, James Panawazic has, but it, it you know it did the the early stirrings of this documentary do talk about two people who seemed to place people ahead of partisanship, populism ahead of partisanship to a certain degree. That uh, one is a Republican, one is a Democrat. That point gets made right away in the narration. But, you know, if you think our political system is broken right now, Kearns, uh, Burns almost seems to be arguing, here's a time when it wasn't quite as broken anyway. Not that there wasn't fractiousness and partisanship, but uh, two presidents seem to be able to put people first at times and maybe uh, partisan issues or, or beating down the other side second. Uh, so maybe we hope that we take that issue to heart. Thanks so much to James Ponawazic, uh, to uh, Mark Joseph Stern, uh, to William Greider. Thanks to Kion Wolf for putting today's scramble together. Thanks to Josh Nolea, our great intern, who we forgot to have in the thank you announcements that aired earlier on the show. We will be back tomorrow with a story we can't even really tell you right now. It's sitting under an embargo, but it's a pretty interesting story about something that may be tried here in Connecticut. So uh, come back tomorrow. We'll unwrap that mystery for you. What's it all about? It's all about the Roosevelt's baby. Flash them times. It's all about the Roosevelt's baby. When FDR emerged from his trip to the Amazon, he brought back with him the telepathic Crystal Skull, which has ever since been filled with Canadian vodka, manufactured by Dan Aykroyd.